This is God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Good morning, everyone. Man, good to see some sunshine finally. What a dreary week uh, it's been. But um, here we are. Uh, We've arrived at Romans chapter 8, known otherwise as the Great Eight. Um, It's a very, very uh, extraordinary chapter uh, in the scriptures. I don't know uh, where you all are in your Bible reading or even if you're familiar with the overall trajectory of Romans 8, but many scholars call chapter 8 the climax of the entire book. In fact, Dr. John Piper, who a lot of people give a uh, a little more authority than he should receive, but he, he calls it the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the entire Bible. Um, he points out that uh, though there are no direct commands as you read through this chapter, it's not necessarily telling us what to do. Um, he points out that it's pervasively laden with the greatest and most glorious joy-awakening facts in the universe for everyone uh, to receive, to stand on. He also goes on to give eight reasons why Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in all, in the greatest book of the Bible. I'll, I'm not going to read all eight, I'll just read you two of them. Uh, it says, there's no other chapter that more deeply or fully deals with the brokenness of the physical universe and how it got that way, the frustrations of it, and what will become of it, and where to place our hope. Second thing he says, is there's no chapter that expresses with more clarity or power the infallible and unbreakable linkages in our salvation, starting from predestination all the way in the beginning to our glorification, which is where we're all ultimately headed one day. And certainly in my ministry experience, I've turned to Romans 8 quite often. It's in my mind. I've had to memorize verses in this chapter a lot at youth conferences and retreats where they don't let you eat unless you recite the verse at the table. And so I have some of Romans 8, like I can recite in my sleep. But in, even in my ministry experience, when I'm put on the spot, uh, I turn to it often uh, because some of the most life-giving promises ha- I've found uh, in, in my study, uh, in my meditation of this chapter uh, for myself, for other people. And not to say that other parts of the Bible are unimportant or the other parts of Romans, all scriptures inspired by God, but some have a special way to encourage us that sticks out. And in that sense, Romans 8 uh, is that chapter for us. Uh, I truly believe that Romans 8 is here, woven into this book, especially for those who still 
feel defeated in their sin. I know we've discussed a lot so far these weeks through uh, Romans chapters 1 through 7, but especially for those who have a hard time understanding it or maybe perhaps even discouraged that what they've read and learned of Romans 1 through 7 doesn't quite match their experience of their day-to-day life and their fight against sin. Romans 8 is there to remind us to press on, to not quit, not be discouraged, because All you are going to read in this chapter will give you power to press on in those teachings. Uh, If you follow the flow of it, it's, it's just, it's really great. It starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And all along the middle, you hear words of no defeat. Very, very life giving, uh, very, very uh, hope giving and empowering. So uh, we're going to be here for a few weeks, so get comfortable. We're going to take our time uh, through Romans 8. We want you all to soak in every word in this chapter, learn from it, digest it, and receive power from these words inspired by the Spirit to live for Christ in victory through it. So uh, let's pray. Let's pray together, and uh, we'll start the great eight. Lord, we uh, come before you uh, on this day you've created uh, created for us so that we can spiritually rest. Thank you uh, that you've declared that we have been forever separated from our sins. As far as the east is from the west, you have set our sins going in one direction and you have set us going in the other direction and we will no longer be one with our sins again. And yet you also promised us that nothing will ever separate us from you because we are one with you as we just sang in your death in your resurrection, we have the victory and there is no more sting in sin and death and hell. Thank you also, God, that uh, even in the dreary days of our lives, that behind the clouds, there's always a bright and shining face of providence for us that in those days where we lack joy we lack that fire in our hearts lord you are still working for our good and these promises still hold true and they will never ever cease to be true and they will never ever be without power for our lives so god as we once again turn to you i'm sure that we've walked into this place today still struggling to be faithful still struggling to understand your heart and your ways for us including myself and if we Come here, uh, broken, weary, winded. May this portion of the scripture come alive for us and give us everything we need to keep our heads up, keep our hearts strengthened in faith, and to press on in our ongoing fight against sin and our ongoing fight for joy and fulfillment in all that Christ has declared and accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. So come upon us today. We ask these things humbly and in faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Romans 8 speaks to the problem of guilt. And uh, I remember um, uh, an incident early in my life where I firsthand uh, experienced just how bad of an effect guilt can have on us. In third grade, uh, in gym class, uh, we had a pull-up contest. How many can you do (laughs) at once? And uh, there there were two finalists. It was me and this very strong athletic girl named Brooke Allen. And um, it wasn't even close. Brooke destroyed everybody, right? Over 10 as a nine-year-old. And so I did mine as she was going at it. I sat there in, in bitterness and jealousy. 
And uh, in, my, in my nine-year-old mind, I was like, hey, it wouldn't be funny to make her look bad if she's destroying everybody. So I turned to my classmate next to me, and I said, hey, Brooke stinks. Pass it on. You know, and, um, and I didn't expect it to get passed on. Uh, but there it went, <laughs> like, a, like a little phone game, that, that, you know, that telephone Korean game where you whisper something and it goes around. So on and on and on it goes, and I sat there in horror and watched it get passed on all the way to my teacher, Mrs. Koble. You know, these teachers, they're very smart. All teachers are smart. I think they could be like detectives uh, as a second job. It took her all of about 10 seconds to discover that I started it. Uh, I got scolded in front of the class, which was embarrassing enough as it was. But poor Brooks started crying. Right? That, that little statement really hurt her. And so uh, I felt very guilty, very, very guilty. Uh, I had to pay the punishment for it. I had to stay after school. Uh, I wrote a very sincere, heartfelt apology note, two lines. I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. <laughs> I put it on her desk. Uh, she accepted the apology, was very nice about it, very kind, and said she had forgiven me, but it wasn't enough. Uh, I felt horrible. And throughout the rest of that year, I remember doing all I could to make it up, not to her, just to her, but to myself, that I need to be assured that I'm not as bad as I was in that momentary uh, moment of, just, of, of judgmental lapsing where I, I did something that was inconsistent with the nice guy I was, even at nine years old. I needed everyone in the class to know that that wasn't me, and my teacher to know that that's not who I really was. So I spent that year just being nice to everybody, coming early to class, holding the door, you know, just, just uh, doing little things uh, to erase that from my record. Now, that was an important lesson for me because, you know, as kids, you know, I, you can't do that. You can't make other kids look bad just because you're jealous of them. Uh, but uh, I did learn uh, just how bad you can feel. And the things that, the torture that guilt uh, can put you through. And as I'm studying Romans 8 and going through even today's message, I realize that not much has changed. And even today, uh, perhaps for you as well, uh, when we let ourselves down, when we disappoint ourselves, we uh, feel terrible, not just the fact that we may have sinned against God, but really about how other people perceive us, uh, how we've let, let ourselves down, and this gnawing feeling of guilt that we're really not as good as we make ourselves out to be. Now, in our lives as we live, we probably uh, know and experience a lot just what kind of effects guilt can have on us, and some are pretty bad. You know, guilt can make us very defensive and insecure and sensitive to what other people have to say about us. And even when we may uh, confess our sins and we, we may openly admit how bad we are, when other people bring it up and confront us or even insinuate uh, that we're bad in any way, we might get Um, we might fight back, we might resist, or we might become very defensive to what they have to say. Guilt can cause us to lose confidence in relationships, even perhaps with friends we've had for a long time, even people we live with, people we know and we feel secure around. There perhaps is this feeling of, I don't want people to really know fully uh, the things that I'm capable of or how bad I've been. So there's this distance, maybe we keep secrets, maybe we, maybe we don't open up uh, in times, maybe in accountability groups like we're going to have. Guilt can lead us to addictive behavior because we know that no matter how many good things we try to do so that we don't feel bad about ourselves, it's never enough, so we turn to bad behavior because sometimes the pleasures of sin can make us forget sometimes that we're actually indeed bad and, and it has the opposite effect of making us feel worse. As we press on in our Christian lives, guilt can cause joy to be absent. We might try to worship God. We might try to get all we can in, in, our, in our relationship with God and worship and our prayer life even, and we just get nothing out of it. Our hearts feel hollow, empty, and dead. And even beyond that, 
especially if we're serving or leading in any capacity, guilt can perhaps destroy any kind of motivation, any joy, and any willingness to give ourselves to serve others in the community and perhaps destroy our heart for ministry completely. And all this can get worse if we just sit there and allow guilt to beat us up. But Romans 8, and particularly the way it starts for us, is God's gift to us. And so to summarize what the message is for us today, it's this, it's that Christ has taken away our guilt. We are no longer condemned. So we follow the Spirit's lead from the power that that declaration gives us so that we we put our sins to death. We kill our sins. So we'll follow this passage under three headings. Um, From verse 1, we see our innocence. From verses 2 and 3, we see our freedom. Look at Christ's sacrifice there. And from verse 4, we see our growth. Okay, so our innocence, our freedom, and our growth. So verse 1, we see our innocence. We see what's been declared for us here. And it's a familiar verse, one of those verses perhaps we've had to memorize growing up. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's break this down uh, phrase by phrase. Therefore, he's starting a new idea here in chapter 8, telling us that Paul, he's made some sort of interim conclusion, and what he's about to declare for us is connected to what we've learned so far, a previous idea. Now, we can look at it as connected to maybe what we recently heard in Romans chapter 7, where we learned about this this vicious conflict that's gone on inside of Paul's soul about the things he wants to do but he can't, the things he doesn't want to do but gives into, and just the hopelessness and despair that comes out. But he concludes that his only hope is in God who would rescue him from this body of death. And maybe that's what it's pointed to. But a lot of scholars actually say that it's the entirety of what we've learned so far in Romans chapter 1 through 7. And that's simple, that by grace alone, by nothing that we've brought, by nothing that we've earned, we have been made right. Our, our position before God, our standing with God has been made right forevermore, and nothing can take that away from us. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it's a very similar idea, just to prove my point here. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's essentially saying the same thing. Only chapter 5, verse 1 tells us what we are, and as we fast forward to chapter 8, tells us what we're not. We have been justified, and we're not condemned, just in case there's any doubt about that. Now, the next word here is now. There is therefore now. It's not something to look forward to, and it's not something you have to work for. You get it now. Now, in the Greek, there are two connotations for that word. The first one is finally now, and the second one is already now. So finally now, that's pretty straightforward. It's simple. It means that you've been waiting for something for a long time. You've counting down the days, and it's finally here. Maybe you count, you're counting down the days for that next vacation that you're going to trip that you're going to take. You know, all throughout the winter, I know, I, I literally count down days from when winter starts through Christmas, through New Year's, till spring, and baseball season starts, because that means life starts, essentially, for me. Uh, maybe you're waiting for that next direct deposit to come in, so you can finally spend money and not abuse your credit lines. You can finally uh, do things. But no matter how long you wait, it's a big relief to say, it's finally now here. The second one is already now, and this is a little different. It refers to something happening before you expect it 
to happen. A bit of a pleasant surprise, right? When you get that warm weather early before the first day of spring, which was not true this year. Uh, it was a little delayed. Do you remember how excited we got as kids when there was an early dismissal from school? You're not going home at 3.30. You get to go home at 12.30. And there's a party around the bus on the way home because it came sooner than later. Maybe that refund check, maybe that package that was supposed to come four days, comes in two days, and you're like, yay, finally, uh, already, now. And we see both of these meanings in Romans 8.1, that there is finally now and already now no condemnation. Finally now because of this, for years, the people of Israel, God's people had to wait. All they had were these ancient laws that we learned about. And that's all they could look to as a measure of how righteous they really were. And as they learned and we learned from hindsight that the law did nothing to make us right with God. It only exposed our sin. It only made us feel bad because we couldn't live up to it. But it couldn't make us right. But what it did do was point us to one who would keep the law. One who would be perfectly righteous. It did point us to a perfect sacrifice so that when that sacrifice took place, Sinners could be made right with God where they once couldn't. Now they could by faith. And when Christ finished that work, finally now, it was a relief for those who were crushed under the burden of never knowing if their obedience to the law was good enough. And already now, because we've learned that Paul, as he's writing these words as he's laboring to advance the gospel, we see in his writings that he always kept the final judgment in view. That final day when all of us will have to stand before the throne of God and give account for our lives. And where he knew as well that those who didn't believe, those who didn't trust in Christ will have to pay the price forever. And instead of having to wait until then to find out what that verdict is for us, we can know now. And that is amazing. If you look at people in other faiths and religions where they're just living every day, wondering if they've fasted enough, if they've given enough, if they've loved enough, if they've attended, attended enough, enough services, participated in enough sacraments, if they're going to be accept, if that's acceptable to enter into paradise at the last day, we can know, already now we can know that we're not guilty, that our innocence is secure. I look at it as a glorious spoiler for us who can know what's already going to happen one day. How many of you hate spoilers? As someone, you're binge watching a show. I'm watching shows. I'm getting ready to watch movies, especially Avengers Infinity War. Uh, before that, I was just like, no one say anything. I don't want to know what happens. And good thing, that movie was crazy. But... Um, but this is something we don't have to wait for, to, to witness or see. We don't have to wait to celebrate for. Because nobody can take it away. It's secure. And that brings us to no condemnation. It's a forensic phrase, justification, that tells us with regard to sin and guilt, not a single charge that anyone can bring against you. And that's so powerful because... Our human nature, and I felt it in third grade too, and even now, that as soon as you do something wrong, these emotions kick in. It's like, uh-oh, I'm going to get it. I have to, make, I have to erase this. I have, if I upset my friends, my spouse, my kids, my pastor, whoever, my leaders, oh, I better put on a good face and not make it worse. 
And maybe we bring that attitude in our spiritual lives to clean up our act, feeling like we're condemned to somehow take that, shed that condemnation off on our own effort. But what it's saying here is not a single charge, including the sentence and the execution. No basis, no evidence. It's all been obliterated. And I think this is important. This is, this is good. Even uh, a, lot of, a lot of commentators uh, point this out, is that when not only do we have this habit of feeling condemned, but when we're let off the hook, when people forgive us, or even when we've paid the price, perhaps, uh, for some of the bad things we've done, um, there's always this inner fear that even if we're off the hook, somehow we can probably put ourselves back on the hook. If we're not under condemnation today, it's only a matter of time before we slip up and somehow put ourselves back under condemnation tomorrow or the next time we face a momentary uh, weakness or a lapse in judgment. But we learn here that Romans 8.1 is not a temporary state. It doesn't just apply to our past. It doesn't just speak to us about our future, and it clearly does not leave the future in doubt. This oscillating, this going back and forth from one day guilty to the next day innocent, one day free, the next day enslaved, is because that condemnation is no longer a concern. That word no is an emphatic no, absolutely no, meaning it will no longer come back into the picture. And if you're united with Christ, and that's the next phrase here, it's for not just for anyone. This verse, this declaration is not just for anyone to throw around. It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, this is true because you are one with him, because the punishment has been done away with. God will never punish his own son, and therefore he will never punish us. And so we don't have to walk around with that fear. You can approach God in prayer and worship, saying, my chains are truly gone. And if you are one with him in faith, you can stand on this every moment of your life. Romans 8.1 is a declaration. It's spirit-empowered. It's for us in this moment now. And it reminds us the great benefit of the faith that we have in him. So secondly... Uh, if verse 1 is the declaration, verse 2 now is the reasoning cause, right, our freedom. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. What we learn here is a reason for the, this, bene this spiritual benefit is because the law of the spirit has set you free from the curse of sin and death. Our liberation in the gospel and our union with him are the basis for our salvation and our justification. Now we've heard that. Obviously we've heard that a lot. And as I was studying this particular verse and reading up on it, I had to really read it and reread it and read up on it to understand um, how does one law set you free from another law? What's the difference? What, what is this pointing us to and how does this connect to this idea here? And I think it really comes down to how we understand that word law is being used. Now, typically, when we read the word law and in its context, we think back to the Old Testament law, uh, uh, generally speaking, God's standards for us, 
and specifically in the Ten Commandments. And on one level, that can make sense as we look at it here. Or simply as a moral principle to abide by. But uh, a lot of scholars agree um, uh, that law in the context of this verse here can refer to a force or power as we see the reference here to the Holy Spirit. The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the spirit of death. So we can read that as the power of the spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death because that's the work of the Holy Spirit for us. Something we are powerless to do and something clearly the law was powerless to do. And furthermore, the law of the spirit of life, that's a euphemism for the gospel, which makes sense because he used that phrase previously, Galatians, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for our salvation. And that is a power that has truly set us free. Now, let's frame this idea in context of what we've learned previously from Romans 7. Paul, again there, he's, he's severely humiliated that he, a man of God, one who witnessed God on that road when he was, self, when he was saved, he was called as a missionary, minister of the gospel. He experienced it, but here he is a slave to his flesh, doing things that he doesn't want to do. How can someone like that find hope? One who has been crippled by the despair of how strong his flesh can be. Is it in the law? No, we've, we've made that point already. It's not in the law. Is it in himself? No, it can't be because he called himself wretched. So he's not looking to himself. He needed something greater to happen, to lean on something more powerful that his entire life hope could be built on that would never, ever change. And here's where we come to verse 3. Verse 1 is a declaration. Verse 2 is the reason and cause, and verse 3 is the power, the foundation of it all. Why do we believe verse 1 and 2 at all? It's because of what we learn happened in verse 3. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. His son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What is that teaching us? It's the incarnation the infinite God taking on flesh, meat, and bones to become a fallible, weak, limited human being. Though he was sinless, he was God in the flesh. Right? That's a Christmas theme. Right? But we don't have to wait till the holidays to sing about it or to get festive about it. It's hope for us now when we can't handle the pain of our guilt. And so two things God does there. He sends his son to die in our place to defeat sin legally, something the law could not do. We learned that. But we see that that's not enough. There had to be punishment. There's still something that needs to be condemned. Someone had to take it so it was placed on his son. And that wasn't enough because, as we know, you can let your kid know all they want that you forgive them. Uh, they don't have to go to timeout anymore, or your students, they don't have to come to detention anymore, all that, but that doesn't guarantee that they're not going to repeat the same uh, mistakes again. And even for us, you know, we know that we're prone to error over and over again. So it's not, wasn't enough to deal with sin in a legal sense, but the power and the bondage of it all had to be done away with forever. We're wayward people. Even as we heard, we are people that always need mercy, streams of mercy for us, because we can never ever live up to what we even declare for ourselves. 
So the power of sin had to be wiped away. And we see a full Trinitarian work. The Son has taken away our condemnation, and the Spirit has broken our bondage. He's left nothing unaccomplished, nothing undone. And the way it's worded here is perfect. Next time you feel like you're condemning yourself too much, or someone else is condemning you too much, look at this. He condemns sin so that we are no longer condemned for sin. The sin was condemned, so now we Christians are no longer condemned. God judged our sin in the sinless humanity of his son. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, that's nothing new. Nothing new, but um, something perhaps we need to uh, rediscover just how weighty, just the horror of what that condemnation of sin entailed. What actually happened? And I was brought back to an old illustration. When I was in seminary, in my, one of my counseling classes, I had to, one of our reading assignments um, on the topic of suffering was a book called When God Weeps by Joni Arison Tata. Strong Christian woman uh, who became a paraplegic in an accident. And th- this, the purpose of this book was to give suffering Christians, suffering people hope. And the main idea being, look at your suffering Savior who invites you into this dark place of suffering to be alongside of you. And in the earlier parts of this book, she goes into detail of how she discovered Christ to be that fellow sufferer. And I'll just read here. Um, it's, it's pretty long, but I'll read just a little bit, bit of it. And um, Very, very, very good. As Jesus hangs on the cross... These pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, must he face his father like this? And this is what he hears. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You, who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections? Foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons. Does the list ever end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel 
and bragging about it all. I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? But of course the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed throughout history, yours and mine. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in one single direction. The cross on Calvary. The Trinity planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled it. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. And here the Father accepted his sacrifice for sin. In that scene of horror, he was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. There is therefore now no condemnation because sin has been condemned in the flesh. And after I read that, uh, verse, I read verse 3 so differently because of the price that was paid that I don't have to walk around feeling bad about myself. I don't have to walk around condemning myself. And certainly I don't have to walk around condemning other people because of the grace of God. He was forsaken for us so that we will never, ever, ever be forsaken by him nor separated from his love. More on that later in chapter 8 in the weeks to come. So finally now, our growth will end with this, chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 1, of, uh, verse 1 was the declaration. Verse 2 was the cause and reason. Verse 3 was the power foundation. Verse 4 now is the result. The result. What is God accomplishing here? In order now that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what this leads to, and what this reminds us is, that that saving work leads to an outworking fruitfulness of forsaking our flesh and walking according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements were fulfilled, but that does not exempt us from living righteously in gratitude, in freedom, in confidence now because we know the verdict. We have the glorious spoiler already in our hearts. Next week, we'll unpack that a little further, uh, what it means to set our minds according to the Spirit as we go on from verse 5. But uh, let's not ignore that here in Romans so far, this repeated pattern of justification and sanctification. It's been declared for us once and for all, but yet there's this continual call to walk, call to live according to the Spirit and to feed that. And so that's why I want to spend just a couple of minutes now. In response to all this, let me ask you all, right in the middle of this, uh, uh, of this series here. How have you been? What has your fight against sin been like? What is your attitude towards perhaps even those nagging sins, those besetting sins, those sins that 
you know, that are hard to dislodge? Are you overly discouraged? Have you grown desensitized and hardened in your heart to them? Have you forgotten that there's not a single sin that God cannot subdue or forgive? And John Owen, just a well-known theologian, reminds us that you're no longer condemned. So now be even more vigilant to not just fight, but to mortify, put the sins to death. And so four quick steps here that he writes. To hate it, starve it, corner it, overwhelm it. Hate sin, starve sin, corner sin, overwhelm sin. We have to start by hating it. Do you hate your sin? Why? Because you won't kill what you don't hate. What you don't hate, you'll tolerate. Uh, I hate mosquitoes and rodents. And when I'm woken up in the middle of the night, I'm not thinking to myself, let me just let them hang around. You know, they'll, they'll eventually go away. No, I don't rest until they're dead. I'll slap them against the wall and my own blood on my own hands. I'll set up that rat, rat zapper trap and go, don't go to sleep until I hear the, the buzz of death. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <clears throat> uh, and as I'm lying there sometimes, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is sin, right? That's sin, you know, uh, and I don't treat my sin like this. It's like, I just hang around for a bit. I'll, I'll just keep it around, and uh, its destructive effects just remain and linger, and, you know, um, what Owen says is sometimes we pass over them with glib affirmations of grace, right? We just kind of take these declarations and just make light of the situation, even the price that was paid for. But we can't grow desensitized. Can't treat it like, you know, sometimes me when I get a car wash, which I recently did, I'm obsessed with the cleanliness of my car after it goes to that wash. I'll drive it home, especially because it's a white car. um, And it looks very shiny after it goes through that thing. And even if a leaf falls on it, I'll get offended. Go away, <laughs> you know, and it's gone. But after a while, the dirt accumulates, birds poop everywhere, and dirt and grime get on it. People scratch it, and I stop caring. In fact, I don't care. Uh, there's just this numbness to that. And when it comes to my own heart, our hearts, if we become deadened and uh, stop caring about the condition of our souls, uh, that is for us uh, a wake up call to come. And be resensitized again. Our consciousness to be, our consciences need to be revived so that we grieve the stench and the grossness of the sin in the same way it grieves God. And only the word and prayer can do that for us. We starve our sins by refusing to feed them, ignoring them. Uh, in the movie A Beautiful Mind old movie, uh, Russell Crowe plays a mathematician, John Nash, who is diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and told that three of his lifelong friends are not actually real, they only exist in his mind. And as the movie progresses, it drives him crazy as these friends convince him that he's in dangerous situations and he reacts to them in ways that are psychotic. And towards the end of the movie, everything's coming to a close, and he's uh, at the end of his life. One, there's this one quote uh, that got me thinking a lot. Um, 
He was talking to a committee member of the Nobel Peace Prize about his mental uh, problems. And he says, oh, I see. You came here to see if I'm still crazy, and you know what? I am still crazy. I still see things that are not here, but I choose not to acknowledge them. Like a diet of the mind, I choose not to indulge certain appetites. I've gotten used to ignoring them, and I think as a result, they've kind of given up on me. I think that's what it's like with all our dreams and nightmares. And as Christians, we can add sin here. Right? We've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. Ignore them and they'll go away. And as you see towards the end of the movie, those friends are kind of still hanging around. You see them, you know, kind of sitting on the ledge and trying to talk to them, but they don't, they have no effect on them. They don't drive them to do crazy things anymore. And such should be the way we deal with sin. We may think that sin, what it offers is the real deal, pleasure, happiness, but in reality, it's the enemy. You've got to remember that we only feel more miserable and shriveled on the inside. And the idea is the same. Starve it. Refuse to indulge them. We feed them, they become stronger. We starve them, they become weaker. Anytime you need to do something that requires energy, what you eat, you have to give yourself strength, but if you don't, you have no power to do it, and we ought to starve our sins in the same way. Thirdly, corner our sins. You know, we recognize John Owen points out that there are certain conditions under which temptation to sin, temptations to sin is more effective. It has an advantage over us. Think about it. Things like exhaustion, stress, loneliness, bad company, certain dark hours of the day, if you're younger, certain dark hours of the night, those ungodly hours, uh, discouragement. Obviously, things you can't always avoid. You know, tiredness comes, stress comes. You can't avoid being around certain people, certain situations. But we know that for certain, some of them, if we dabble in them, uh, it becomes more difficult to starve the sins and much more easier for us to give in. So we need to identify what those are. Uh, and in prayer, by God's grace, avoid them. What habits lead you down bad paths? What kind of places, what, what kinds of company bring out the worst in you? Where do you become reckless, rage-filled? I should stop driving in traffic in rush hour. Ride my bike or something. Where do you completely get distracted from God and trying to please Him with your life? What kind of things do you view or consume that feed your impure desires and make you sinfully want more? Corner your sins by disassociating, your, disassociating yourselves from the circumstances that keep those sins company. It will be much easier to starve. And finally, we overwhelm sin with something greater. Once we've done all we could to weaken the power and the grip of sin, we don't just sit there. We turn to the one who never stops fighting for us. You know, if God ever stopped fighting for us, then we're in trouble. Why fight at all? But friends, that will never happen. What we learn and what's declared for us once and for all is that God sees us in Christ. He loves us with an all-powerful love that's stronger than death, and that's why we sing that it has no sting, no victory. 
We don't just focus on getting rid of bad habits. We draw near to, turn to someone who is superior, who will overwhelm that sin for us. And that confidence comes in that that sin has already been ultimately overwhelmed when he trampled on it forever, when he came out of that tomb. The Spirit of God gives us strength beyond ourselves so that we can fight that fight against sin. His all-satisfying presence in Christ alone gives us that promise of a superior and lasting joy. You know how you are making progress? That this is stuff is working for you is that you're more focused on God than anything else. Yourself, your sin. When you do fall into sin, your first thought isn't, uh-oh, what's going to happen to me? Or what do I need to do so that uh, I erase this stain? It's more God's kindness in Jesus leads me to repentance and change. And his embrace of love and mercy enfolds me and no one will snatch me out of the Father's hands. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, uh, maybe um, some of this sounds familiar. Uh, maybe the guilt of failing yourself or letting others down is not something you need a Christian, let alone a pastor, to convince you of, uh, that it's not pleasant. You know, and we're, none of us are perfect. Uh, it's something we all need to fight. But guilt isn't something that we just need, that we have to just accept as a part of life, so long as we do enough good things so that we don't hate ourselves, right? Because it's never enough. We believe in a God who has done something to put that guilt away forever so that those very stains that sin leaves on our souls can be blotted out. Not just uh, fading away, with a little detergent here, but completely blotted out. Isn't that something you want? You know, a lot of people outside of the church might think, you know, I can be a good person without becoming a Christian, without going to church. I can stand by my own morals, and I can uh, do them as best as I can, and who can judge me for that? But let me ask you, when you fail, where do you turn? When you let yourself down, how do you deal with it? I would argue the opposite. The only way to true goodness is to look to the one, trust in the only one who was perfectly good, and realize that he was good for you. And you know that he accepts you on the basis of your right standing and union with him. He was perfect. And only by following him in faith can you truly become what you were made to be reflecting his likeness for his glory, walking by the Spirit. And that's what it's all about here. And that's why today, even in a few, just a couple of verses here, we can be even more free than we were when we felt bad. And at times like this, we can look back at our journey, see how far God has brought us, see the transforming work that he's done, and do this often so that we can take hope that he will walk with us until we're finished. So I'll just read this quote by John Newton to you. I uh, heard it uh, in a conference sermon by D.A. Carson, and it just, I, I'll never forget it. And we'll close. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. We stand in Christ alone. And the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, gives us the strength to deal with our weakness, our eventual failings, to preach to ourselves and declare to the world around us, my guilt is gone. No power of death, no scheme of man, no guilt in life, no fear of death will ever, ever be in my experience because in him we collectively stand. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Uh, in these uh, remaining moments of the service, I'll invite you to respond in your hearts. Uh, you know the kind of struggles that uh, you've, you've had to wrestle with. Um, and even as we uh, began uh, our service today, uh, focusing on the shining grace of God for us in days of darkness, uh, what does all that mean to you? What does all that mean to you? A lot of you are, by nature, good people. I realize that our church, we're blessed with good people, nice people. We uh, know what's right. We know that we need to do what's right. And we try to teach others the same. We try to raise our families that way. We try to instruct each other in that way. But in those moments of weakness, we all lapse in judgment every now and then. And I know even this week, I've had to deal with that myself. We can go down a couple of routes there. Um, one of slavery. One of self-condemnation. Uh, one of joylessness. Which are the opposite of what the gospel preaches. Or we can turn to Romans 8. We can let it loudly declare to us and drown out every other voice. That what's once and for all declared for us that we are no longer under condemnation will never ever be reversed. You can't somehow put yourself back under it and nor should you put anyone else back under it. We are all set free because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of the spirit of death. How? Because God took on flesh and in the flesh he condemned sin so that that condemnation is no longer ours. And there, my friends, is how you deal with guilt. There, friends, is where you draw the hope, the confidence, and the power to not just tolerate sin and leave it around, but do everything you can to hate it, starve it, corner it, and overwhelm it with the wonders and the glories of the sinless holy God who is much more beautiful than anything we can ever behold on this earth. So I invite you now for, the, for these remaining minutes to draw near to God in faith, pray, Allow these words to lead you to repentance. Allow them to strengthen your heart for greater resolve and obedience and freedom and joy. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for help. Come to the throne of grace and let him carry you to that place of rest you need. Let's pray. Let's pray and uh, allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in prayer.